1: Gruner Veltliner is entrenched at its ground zero in Europe where much of it is produced in Austria, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia under various names. Though the name Veltliner suggests that it comes from Valtilina, no evidence linking the grape to that region exists, and most experts believe that the grape is indigenous to Austria. Gruner Veltliner's parents are Savanin and St. Georginer. Savanin comes from the Pinot family, but St. Georginer is a unique outlier. Outside of very recent propagation efforts, just one old grapevine of St. Georginer is known to exist. The over 500-year-old vine sits in the middle of a field where vines haven't been grown since at least the 1800s. Recently dubbed a national monument, the ancient parent of Gruner is now protected by the Austrian government, and revival efforts are underway. It's quite remarkable that the lone grapevine was found and identified as a parent of Gruner Veltliner after sitting abandoned for centuries among weeds. Gruner Veltliner is versatile and can produce food-friendly table wines, sparklers, late harvest wines, world-class age-worthy bottlings, and everything in between. Gruner Veltliner is spreading throughout the world, Recent plantings in Australia abound, with the help of some great interest from Prue Henschke. Plantings in New Zealand are more and more popular as well. In the U.S., several states are making Veltliner: New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and California, to name a few. And stay tuned to hear how one California producer, who has hung his hat on Riesling, is also branching out to make high-quality, domestic Veltliner.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O F F S E T partners with an s dot com. offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand graham titomer here today from the sitomer winery in california hello sir how are you I'm very well, Levy. Thanks. Uh, Happy to be here. Nice to see you. How you been? I've been great. Yeah, everything's good. So let's take it back to the beginnings here. Your parents were into wine and your dad used to collect German Riesling.
2: Yeah, that's right. They were buying and drinking uh, mostly Bordeaux, a little bit of German Riesling in the 60s and 70s as like a hobby. And I think that, that definitely had a huge effect on on me getting in the industry just because wine was around our house growing up.
0: Your dad would be like, Hey, check this out.
2: Yeah. He'd be like, when he'd have something good open, he'd say, Hey, you know, just try this. And it'd be some Bordeaux probably from a great vintage, you know, and like, okay, that's, that's tannic and burly or, you know, be like, okay. And, or it'd be a German Riesling from the early seventies.
0: So they were already getting that respect in your household, you know, the Riesling grape. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then what was the switch from being someone who was occasionally offered a glass to being involved in a winery?
2: That really just started as a, a job I got. It was basically the, my first job. I was 16 and looking for just some cash. It was summer. My brother had worked for the local winery, Santa Barbara Winery. And somebody didn't show up for a bottling line to work bottling one day. And he said, Hey, call up my brother. I think he's looking for some work and he could probably come down. And I did.
0: What and was that like when he walked in the door?
2: It was, you know, I'd been to wineries before and I love that feeling, you know, walking into that winery. Cause that smell you get when you enter a winery, it just smells incredible. And like, you know, it's this cold room, but then warm because there's all these, all this wood around. It's uh, something very special. And I just started packing boxes and was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Started asking questions. And the winemaker there was, and his assistant was winemaker Bruce McGuire and assistant Greg Brewer. They were just totally in, like encouraged me and they really kind of just like, oh, he's interested. Let's just do what we can. You know, they didn't like be like, hey, you should like become a winemaker, but they were just answer your questions respectfully and they're like, yeah, sure. We can find a little extra work for you if you're interested.
0: And so you started doing more work for them.
2: Yeah. I ended up, um, working harvest for them after school. Like, you know, it turned out I found it, you know, harvest, they're working long, long hours and that like, great, I'll come in and, you know, scrubbing tanks, but being in the environment, learning how it all, how it all happens. And then eventually, started to work for them pretty close to full time as I made, like kind of worked my way through college. It was a great experience.
0: By that time, you're probably really into the wine idea.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, I was, yeah, I was into it. I did like a couple little like carboys, Chardonnay in 1997. You know, it was just like, well, let's see, let's, let's see what it's like to, to be in charge of like all the decisions and, and that go? do it. it. It was, it was nice. The, the, those wines were delicious. I was really you know it's it's hard to make a tiny amount of wine actually it's like there's just a lot of room for air. so the wines haven't preserved as much as I would have liked but um but they were good. they were good when uh when I made them and then in um in 1999, I was like let's give it a little bit bigger go and made um, started my first label called cataabasis then. And that first vintage, I only had sylvaner but then the next two vintages, I had Riesling and Gewürztraminer, Pinot Gris, and it, w- it went really well. It was, I don't know, I just thought, you know, I think these varieties just deserve a, a lot of attention, and you just gotta, you gotta make it your little baby, you know, in in the winery, and not not make it like this this thing in the corner, like, oh yeah, we've got a little bit of that, like we'll sell it out of the tasting room.
0: But those are all station grape varieties. So, were there a lot of people around to tell you about those?
2: No, yeah, there was almost no one to tell me. In fact, uh, so, you know, I never went to school for winemaking. I learned from talking to like Bruce McGuire, Greg Brewer, and we were talking mostly about Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. And sure, like they, like Santa Barbara Winery owned Lafon Vineyard. I got to work with that Riesling. But, you know, that's just, it's just a different, set of flavors and conditions you know to grow it and i there was a wine i was i had made i think it was the yeah it was the 2000 pinot gris and it just smelled it smelled weird and i was having all my all the winemakers i know smell it in the area and they're like that's really weird graham like what are you what are you gonna what are you gonna do with that i'm like i don't know i think I guess I have to like add something to it. And then, you know, you, you know, these, these lab companies send us all these books of like stuff you can add to wine. And generally, um, generally like small producers, just put that book in the corner, put it, lock it away. You don't really do much to the wine, you know? So good grapes, is easier to make good wine, but if you actually have a problem, there's all these solutions, right? So all these guys thought I had a problem and I thought I had a problem. The wine smelled funky and cheesy and weird. And, Some way I came through the winery tasting and um, he tasted it and he was just like, Whoa, dude, dynamite, this wine is awesome. This is what you want. I was like, What are you talking about? Smells funky. And he said, Yeah, this is like this really exotic flavors you can get, like sometimes in Alsace and it's like kind of stinky, kind of like, you know, it's cheese rindy. And he's like, That's good Pinot Gris. But, you know, look at all these other good things in this wine. You know, I was about to, I don't know. I was about to add like a bunch of weird, like plastic or Teflon to it, strip it of flavor. And uh, thank, good, thank goodness I didn't. But more importantly, that kind of sparked off the idea of, you know, I, d- I don't have a peer group to turn for these specific varieties. I've got plenty of peers that can talk to me about chemistry and growing grapes in California, which is a huge part of knowledge base. But I wanted to be a m- more specific, which meant moving to Europe.
0: And when did you pick that up?
2: So that was... I, I kind of wrapped up Catabasis after the 2001 vintage and then, you know, aged it, sold the wine in 2002 and then moved to Austria in 2003.
0: where did you land there?
2: At Finke Canole.
0: Oh, what was that like?
2: Incredible. I mean, that that family is amazing and they really become... We have a real special relationship. I mean, if they're they're just... It, it it would just clicked, you know. It's I went over there originally just to work harvest for eight weeks on this big European trip I was taking. And it's just I, I stayed much longer than eight weeks. I ended up staying through the new year and then coming back and working with them in, in the springtime and then coming back, so, you know, for a couple extra vintages in 05 and 06. And it just happened to be, you know, they just happened to be this epic producer, right? I was really with them more as like a, like a family member almost, you know? So it's, yeah, I just can't emphasize how, how special that relationship is, but opportunities to taste so much Riesling, so much Grunewald Liener from people that it's, they've made it their life's work to make amazing examples of the grape, you know, um, and to taste back vintages, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, it was a good time.
0: But it's also a winery that's located in a region that's pretty hot within Austrian standards, right? Pretty warm some days.
2: Definitely during the summer. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm studying this a lot right now because, like in Santa Barbara, we have this ridiculously long growing season, right? As we have early bud break, but then we're still harvesting in September, October, or even November because it just doesn't get that warm in the summer. But in Austria, it gets quite warm. Like in Alsace, it gets incredibly warm, and parts of Germany as well. It's uh, just—it's a, a different—it's a different set of circumstances. I know during harvest in Austria, it's quite cold, though, much colder than I'm used to in California.
0: And you must have been there at Canol right about the time that there was some generational change in terms of the winemaking at Canol.
2: Definitely, it was. Uh, When I was there, it was just, you know, their their, their grandfather who had really put Canole on the map had passed away in 99. And so there was that change because he, I guess, until through that whole vintage, he was quite involved. And then his son, Emmerich, you know, he had been running, really running it, I believe in the 80s and, and 90s. But then his youngest son, Emmerich, also was kind of set up to take over and so he was just a couple years older than me and that's who i he you know really befriended him. there's two brothers there's august and Emmerich, and they they're at the winery every day they're doing it but yeah it was it was a generational shift and and not just there at canola this was simultaneously at Hertzberger and altsinger you know it was it was just i couldn't the timing couldn't have been better
0: because you were the same age as those guys.
2: I was essentially the same age as those guys. And those guys weren't in charge yet, but they were about to be in charge. So it's like they knew everything. They they, they could run the show probably, you know, if if something were to happen and, and they they had to do it right then. But um, but they were also like free enough because they weren't the, the boss. So they had extra time to hang out or take extra time to talk to me about questions I'd have or.
0: Or they could be like, "You know, if I were the boss, what <laughs> I would do like those kind of conversations, <laughs> like I don't know why we've been doing it that way.
2: no, I, they are they're incredibly respectful to the generation before them, actually yeah you know, it was it was great to see that
0: but I think at least with Canol, I feel like the wines have changed a little bit, like in the same way that f x Peakler, maybe not the same way, but also f x Peakler has changed a little bit with the generational change, no.
2: They have, I feel though, that I feel like a lot of wines in Austria changed or even just in Europe changed in the first decade of, of this century. And through global warming, through different ripening and they're dealing with different product. And I felt like a lot of the change, uh, had to do with learning to work with, with this new product that you're getting. So. I think if you look at examples of, you know, like 2013 Austria or like 2008 in Austria, those remind me more of the wines from the 90s or the 80s. And those are more classic vintages there. So you could argue that that they haven't changed that much. It's just they've adapted, you know, and, and these are now, yeah, the wines are different and they're it's like it would it would be almost wrong to try to make them the same because like the vintage was just so different.
0: Did you see vintages that were more a Riesling vintage than a Gruner vintage and vice versa? Did you see vintages that really played to one or the other?
2: Not while I was there. You know, I don't think I was... Um, I didn't know enough to be able to to appreciate that. That was something though that they would talk about and I think in my head... I wish I could grasp that, you know, like what, what do they see? And, you know, a lot of it for them is just either you couldn't translate it or, or it's, it's just part of the wine growing that is artisanal, you know, where it's like, Oh, you just got to fit, you know, it's just, it's a little bit more of a gruner here, you know, Uh,
0: it's all these things that we feel and we've seen Sometimes with canola, I've seen them as wines that took a little while to shed their weight, almost. Like, in the bottle, with significant age, they became more precise wines, which isn't every wine that does that. That's a fairly limited subset of my own understanding sure. of even Austrian wine, where the wine seems pretty robust, pretty thick, and then, you know, give it 10, 15 years, and you open it up, and it's a lot more of a ballerina than you had remembered. Absolutely. It, what would cause that? I don't, it's never really registered for me why that might be. They have a powerful
2: style. Their winemaking emphasizes a a fair amount of strength in the final wine, like due to the level of flavor and the grapes they've grown throughout the year. And then the fact that they're crushing it and macerating it, that's going to, Bring a lot of flavor, but also bring a lot of kind of walls or barriers that need to, sh- you know, that need to go away to be able to see the elegance.
0: So part of it's skin macerated and
2: that might be... That's what I'm going to say. I like, I haven't done some sort of lifelong research. You know, I it seems to be the case, you know, they're, they're in the vineyard all the time and they're trying to make incredibly flavorful grapes, you know, and, and then... Bringing in the wine, I, I just, I think that's the byproduct of uh, being a very traditional producer where it's like skin contact, aged in very large format wood, aged for a long time in the cellar. And then what, yeah, what you explained is what we get. We get these, wine, I mean, with with canola, they all, like, on, on my first visit there, one of the other producers just like said to me, you know, the biggest mistake people ever make is drinking canola young. And, but the reason they do it because the wine is so good young, like there's so much wine there. But if you wait five, 10, 15 years and you get like what, you know, you get this ballerina that shows up this total like elegance, crystalline, like the wines are transcendent, you know, it's it takes patience to wait. And it's hard to wait on a wine that's so pleasurable young. You know, I, I feel that I, I get that out of like Burgundy a lot, you know, it's like, Oh, the wine is so good now, but if you, but then if you taste the same wine 10 years later, it's like, whoa, I wish I saved every bottle for this moment.
0: So what are some of the other takeaways from your time at Canole for you?
2: Living there that much time and just in the way I was, the way they brought me in, there's going to be things that I that I don't even know now that I've learned on that trip that will some, you know, they'll be like, oh, this is what they were talking about. Like That's already happened, you know, every year it seems like I've seen this and I didn't, I couldn't apply that knowledge until now, or right? I wasn't able to to pull it out again until now.
0: Like the born identity, like you don't know yeah, that you're a gruner, Velliner, assassin, <laughs> that you have these skills exactly. And then when a crisis moment happens, you yeah. know you can just pull it out, and you know how to do all the karate chops to the to the gruner, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I I hope so. <laughs> you're like, well, I don't know why I'm noticing all these small things the I way the guy so. carries himself in the room. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I can tell he's six foot four and he came in in a blue four door car outside. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Unleash
2: unleash the beast. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's kind of like that. It's, you know, um, but you know, something I learned from them that I found interesting is, you know, they delay ripening so that they avoid September rains, which are common in Austria. And so like the reason is if the grapes are really underripe, they have a thicker skin and they're more susceptible to rain, water rot. And in California, I avoid ripening in September because it can be so hot. We can get these heat spikes, it's unbelievable heat spikes. And if our grapes are not used to that heat, they'll just be like shriveled or zapped out of existence. So I'm trying to delay ripeness into October where it where it gets milder and so we have a bigger window to pick, just like they were trying to they delay it till October so that they have a have less chance of rain during October. And bigger windows to pick.
0: What about the difference between working at Canol and Hertzberger? What'd you pick up at?
2: at Hertzberger, you know, there's much more botrytis because spitz. It's basically they like they can't get the ripeness without botrytis. So Got a lot more hands-on with that. It's, uh, it's fascinating.
0: So like Hertzberg or Riedel Riesling is a Riesling where often Botrytis is part of the style.
2: Like always. I mean, even in... Uh, always. I mean, I was there in 2003, just unbelievably warm vintage, and they still would... They weren't going to get the ripeness they wanted without Botrytis still, you know? They have to have it. I mean, w- something that's interesting in Wachau is the choice of how much betrayas to use in the dry wine blend or cuvee you know and because like so hertzberger uses more of it which gives it a richer like honeyed more like ripe apricot characters you know ripe stone fruits versus produce them would use less of that you know might have more floral aromatics or in Spitz, where just about everybody's using more botrytis, I've left of a reference point. But um, like in in Loiben, where Canol is, you know, their neighbor is Leo Altzinger, who's known for using almost no botrytis in his dry wines. And you can take, like, it's fun to, uh, you know, to try like Grunewald, Liener, or Riesling, Leubenberg from Altzinger and Canol Because Canol uses more botrytis than Altzinger does. And just see that little bit of difference from like two high-end producers making the same grape, same vineyard, but just that's
0: the biggest change, you know? Because sometimes I think botrytis in a dry wine also takes a while to come around in the bottle.
2: Yeah, that might go back to your question on why it takes longer for the kernel wines to to shed their fat.
0: Because Alzinger in particular is a wine where I can drink their 13 Rieslings and be like, delish. Yeah. You know, like I'm ready, you know, yes, they're going to get more interesting they maybe show a little bit more down the line of course but you know
2: but they start off on the more crystalline version
0: and yet they're neighbors right and mm-hmm. they work some of the same vineyards the mystery of wine huh
2: yeah it's <laughs> it's just like there's unending factors that can be involved so when did you decide to come back to california well i came back you know i didn't just like live there for three years so i came back off and on but it was the 2006 vintage where that was the that was the time I moved over there thinking I might not come back like I might stay over there I'm gonna look around I'm gonna see what the chances are of getting grapes of of producing wine as a foreigner over here and living in this country so that was uh, and obviously I, I came back so that was the end I basically came like right around in December 2006 back to the U.S
0: besides the Santa Barbara winery, did you have winemaking mentors in the States? Absolutely. I met, I
2: got to work with Adam Tolmack at the Ojai Vineyard, and that was just, that was, that was pretty incredible. I mean, he, he had a really good team and, and he was a producer where his, he didn't own a vineyard. He worked, he made really, really outstanding wines. The vineyards were far away from him. He's in Ojai and he's working all with Santa Barbara County fruit. So and somehow he made it work where he's involved, like in the dirt of his vineyards. And so I got to work with him for a couple of vintages and it was just great to see how he created a team at the winery that could basically do the work of, of producing wines when he wasn't there, when he was up in the vineyard. So it was usually like a couple of days a week Two to three days a week, he'd be in the vineyard and the crew would be processing the fruit. You know, he would show up and there'd be a checklist of things to do.
0: What did he tell you in terms of takeaways there?
2: You know, I, I was a bit of a like perfectionist and like worried, like, oh, what if all this is wasted time? You know, so he's like, you just got to do it. You know, Riesling can grow here and, you know, you, you're not going to make Riesling that tastes like it came from the Rheinessen and you shouldn't. Like you're gonna make recently the taste like it came from Santa Barbara because that's where it comes from. And hopefully you make it, you know, a wine that you like to drink and are proud of. Like I think you can do it. Like, go for it. So she's she's a huge supporter.
0: Almost more of like a generational tie into like that pioneer level of California winemaker. Like just go 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 for it. Like yeah
2: that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Cause um I mean, I think we still are we're still in that period as a wine country that was one of the reasons I, I went for making recently ma- making those varieties under the Catabasis label. It's like, I liked, it's like, wait, we've just decided that Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are like the only things we should grow here. that seems a little bit premature, you know? And, uh, yeah. So I, I know Adam was very involved in pioneering the Santa Barbara region, you know, in the eighties with like Jim Clendenin and they were just trying to make good wine and, Get, you know, you got to get what's around and, and do your best. And that's, that hasn't changed for me. You know, it's like uh, there's not a lot. of It's not like I've got a bunch of Riesling sources that are like, oh, maybe I should try that vineyard next year. It's like, oh, no, this is what's around. Let's, let's try to let's do our best with this.
0: And one of the great varieties that you made besides Riesling under Catabasus and then also your current label is Silvaner. What's that been like to grow and to produce?
2: Yeah, that's a crazy grape The first year I got it. I mean, Solana looks more like table grapes, huge berries, pretty slimy. But, you know, just don't overthink it. So I also made and Pinot Gris under Cataposus. And then now under Totomer, it's just Riesling, Grunovettliner, Pinot Noir, and uh, Silvaner. So what's it like to make a Pinot Noir Rosé? I went into it trying to not overthink it at all. Think, okay, I love rosé. My wife loves rosé. It seems like everybody likes rosé right now. No, Pinot Noir was the grape for us to use because it was already in a vineyard we we're working with. It's, I started making Pinot Noir. I love that grape. So, it was, you know, it's a natural fit for me. And But just didn't try to overthink it. Just decided to direct press. I have uh, one of my vineyards, John Sebastiano, I have an acre of Pinot Noir there. And so I picked about half of it a week or... Early for the rosé because I thought oh, you know what there's a lot of flavor coming through here. Let's just let's go for it and put it in the press and basically put it on the same regime like I would put Gruner leaner You know, just whole cluster press, cold settle it, and then ferment it in stainless and and then black malolactic and let it just let it just be there. So blocking mellow, which you probably don't do for the regular pinot noir, not for the regular, yeah, not for the regular pinot noir. So I, I really just it is. Pinot Noir grapes, but I treated it like, a white, like wine. a white
0: wine, absolutely. Then probably drinking it right away.
2: Yeah. Lower levels of SO2 because, you know, I just think you know, I wasn't trying to make some sort of hearty can age forever rosé, although I love some of those examples, but only a few people can do that. And there's plenty of rosé that's just it's good because it's good to drink
0: right away. Do you think that making the rosé helped improve your Pinot Noir red wine production? I don't think it affected it. Totally different thing. Yeah. What's a war like to deal with?
2: I feel like you need to be thoughtful on what it kind of touches. It's sensitive, but then it's easy to keep it away from damage. You know, you just have to know if you've got rot in the vineyard, you should remove it. So get clean fruit. You just start with clean fruit, ferment it, press it, put it in a barrel. It's actually... Not very challenging to make. I, I don't have to think about making the pinot noir nearly like I'd say think about making riesling, because it's more like just do a clean process to it and let it. You know, you're allowing all the sugar goes away, all the malic totally goes through malolactic. So you know, you don't, you don't. There's just less things to think about. You keep your barrels topped up. You're probably be good if you're working with a good vineyard.
0: But is that almost kind of like a little bit of reductive style of Pinot making? Like, is it kind of a white wine influence take on Pinot?
2: Yes, it's fairly reductive. Yeah, because, you know, press when it's almost finished fermenting so that I retain CO2 in the barrel, but then just keep it topped up. No sulfur. It doesn't see sulfur or gas until 18 months later. But you've got your lees there and you've got a cold cellar. Hopefully, high, you know, as long as your hygiene's clean in the winery, you, you don't have a, too much to worry about. But if you don't have that, you have a lot to worry about. Like, that's where Pinot is known for being difficult. I think of it as being fragile. But you just can't, you can't let your guard down, and it's not that difficult to accomplish that, I think. You know, you just do the right thing.
0: What kind of flavors are you getting out of the Pinot profile when you taste Was it? it red fruit, black fruit?
2: Fairly dark red to black fruit. You know, I found that with Pinot Noir, I'd never had an example of California Pinot Noir that was lacking fruit. So,
0: And maybe that's what you're compensating for. Like you yeah. want it to have more zippiness. Yes. Through the style of which you're making.
2: Yes, exactly. So that's like, if there's other things in there, my method was to maybe showcase a little bit of some other things, but the final product is there's still dark fruit there. It's still, um, it's still California Pinot. It's great, but it's light on
0: its feet. And what about price points? You know, where does Pinot fruit come in on Santa Barbara yeah. as opposed to Grunervald, Liener, Savant, yeah, or Riesling?
2: Pinot Noir is pretty expensive, especially the, in 2013 was when I started making my first Pinot Noir and I didn't have a rosé that vintage. And I got to work with a, premium, like a really high-level vineyard called Duverita. And that fruit is expensive, and the wine is expensive. It just, it, it has, it's kind of, the wine has to be the price that it is. And then the rest of the Pinot Noir is still, uh, all of it's more expensive than Riesling, because Riesling is affordable. Grunewald is expensive. Grunewald is like as expensive as, I, if you would call it like cheap Pinot, you know, or cheaper Pinot but it's basically to get somebody to plant a, you know, to get a grower to commit to planting a grape variety they've never heard of. You've got to be able to, you've got to be able to pony up with, with some cash for sure. To keep
0: the vines in the ground.
2: Yeah. Or to initially do it, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's expensive land out there. That's one of the dangers of kind of losing these varieties, you know, the talk about how we're, we're making fewer and fewer varieties in California land is so expensive you have to it's, you know it's it's hard to resist you know it's like oh we could try this thing that some winemaker heard about on a trip to new york or paris or something you know and now wants to plant here but i've never heard of it or we could try pinot noir or cabernet that we know like there's an audience a huge audience for that the wines
0: command higher prices so but probably um, there's something to be said for a particular grape variety doing well in a site The same time, right? Absolutely, but
2: who's going to take that? Who's who's going to take that chance? You know, somebody that you know just wants to, someone that's in for it more than like if if they can afford for it to to not work out.
0: So does that mean it's easier to get people to plant Riesling than Grüner because they've heard
2: of it more? No, it's the opposite. Like in California, I feel that Riesling has a bad name because originally there was a lot of Riesling planted and it was difficult to grow. Especially like in Santa Rita, where there used to be a fair amount, but that maritime influence was very conducive to rot, which is, you know, Riesling is is pretty sensitive to that, moisture borne rots. So they would get less and less of a crop or they'd, you know, they'd lose their customers. And then in the marketplace, no one was buying it. And so it became more and more challenging, I think, in the seventies and eighties to for them to sell riesling grapes and to sell riesling wine. So growers it's it's like they have a bad taste in their mouth for that. But grünerveltliner they think nothing of it. You know, that's like any you know that's like saying I want to plant Pulsard or something it's, they've never heard of it. And so now there is always that that grower or the investor oftentimes in in California grape growing that They want to just diversify a little bit. They know, you know what? I've diversified the rest of my life. It's a smart thing to do. I don't only want to have Pinot Noir or Cabernet, or I don't want to just have those two and a little bit of Sauvignon and a little bit of Chardonnay. Let's throw in a couple other things, even if it's just an acre here, an acre there. And that's how I feel that Gruner was established in California is these little, these very sort of safe micro trials.
0: And who are some of the first people to get involved with that?
2: The first one that I'd heard of was Von Strasser. And then you'd hear tales of some winemaker, like in Sierra Foothills or Santa Cruz, but doing a quarter acre where like nobody's ever even seen a bottle of the wine. You know, maybe they just drink it with their friends or they sell it only in the tasting room. And it's it's also a winery that maybe you've never heard of. They're just kind of off the radar. The winemaker maybe did it themselves, you know. But the first one that I feel like really pulled the trigger was... The, the Niven family at Paragon Vineyard in Edna Valley. They planted 10 acres. And when, when I heard about that, I learned about that through an article in the LA Times and just contacted them immediately.
0: What'd they say? I mean, what was the reasoning there?
2: The reasoning was, you know, they had started a label called Tangent, which was basically white wines that were lived their whole life in stainless steel. I think most of them were blocked malactic. They were affordable and there was like not Chardonnay. You know, they, they were doing, I think they planted something like 60 or 80 acres of Albarino at the same time. And they, what they did was they, they, they had Riesling, they had Sauvignon Blanc, they had Pinot Gris, but they wanted more and they did research. And they said, you know what? We think, based on what we've learned, Albarino could work here in Edna. And we think Grunewald could work here too. Let's go for it. Let's try it out. We think there's demand for this. We think we can make this work. And that's like an example of I'm just grateful that someone someone went for it.
0: What are the characteristics of an Edna Valley Grüner Veltliner?
2: It's more on the cucumber, mint. It definitely has the classic white pepper. You get a lot of grapefruit out of it. You know, I call it sort of like spa flavored. I mean, it has this like lavender cucumber. Like, it just, you know, you're in, it sounds like you know, someplace in the afternoon that you'd go and like relax. Those are the flavors it has. And, you know, all of those, you can find that in Austrian Gruner. So I think it's pretty, it's pretty true to certain
0: regions in Austria. Is it different to grow in Edna Valley than it would be in Austria? It is, but, you know, in, in Austria, they are,
2: they'll have their program, right? You know, their intention, which is to maybe just make a, afternoon on the porch wine or like a pretty serious wine for the three-star Michelin restaurant where it's like spare no expense and these guys are diehard in the vineyard with the rakes and the hose, you know. So you could have that same mentality here, to be making a very casual Gruner leaner. I could really try to monitor it, monitor it, and l- keep learning and get it so it's a more powerful or less powerful Gruner. But sure, I think the growing gruner in edna valley is different than growing gruner in santa barbara and growing gruner in the wachal is different than growing gruner retliner in the vine fiddle
0: what about ripening where does it fit in
2: it's interesting so classically like in in austria you start picking riesling fetterspiel or like you know where i was where they use that system so you start with Riesling, fetterspiel then you switch to gruner vettliner fetterspiel then you switch to Gruner Schmaragd, and then you finish with Riesling Schmaragd. So
0: the Riesling harvest is the last one.
2: Well, it, the first and the last. It's like it has this longer. Like you take a break from Riesling, but Gruner, it's like you start picking Gruner and then you just finish it, and then you, you know, it during while you're picking, it's going through that ripening curve, where eventually you're picking the Schmaragd wines, you know,
0: just a few days
2: after. It's just continuous.
0: And that's the austrian model
2: that's the austrian model out here paragon and the sites i well and then the, the gruneweltliner i have at john spasiano which is the main component of miris the one i call miris um those are typically picked about three weeks before i pick any riesling so last year in 2014 that was the first year we got gruneweltliner off kick on ranch which is my main riesling site they grafted over some Pinot Gris to Grunewald for me. And that's definitely the coldest vineyard I work with. It's the closest to the water. It's just windy, it's desolate, it's pretty harsh. And that Grunewald Liener ripened in the middle of the Riesling harvest. So, you know, I don't get Riesling from Edna Valley and I don't get Riesling from John Sebastiano. You know, still in California, you know, we're talking, if I get to my first vineyard, if I drive to my first vineyard, you know, one, it's not right outside my door, you know, so you've got to drive your first vineyard it's 10 minutes from my ten, fifteen minutes from my house. And then the next vineyard is another 10 or 15 minutes from there. And the next one is another 10 or 15 minutes there. And then it's like 10 minutes to the winery. And then there's a couple satellite vineyards, maybe 45 minutes away from me. So it's, it's all, you know, eventually we might have all these extra regions appellations that, might explain more. You know, it might be like... It'd be easier to talk about if I had multiple Gruner, Meltliner sites in Edna Valley or
0: something, you know? You said earlier that if someone really wants to make that blowout smark in Austria, they're going to be there all the time with the checking on it, the rakes and the hose. I mean, when the vineyards are a little bit more far flung like that, does it give you that same opportunity to do that or does it mean that you're making a different kind of wine?
2: It's It's a different kind of wine. I think to really to really go for it on a level. I mean, I have just huge respect for what they do. Anybody that, that lives basically in front of their vineyard, you, you can't, you can't, you can't drive to it. I mean, it's the fact that I think you, you find the most intensity, you find the most intensity in, in my wines on the vineyards that I'm able to go to all the time. Like where it's just ridiculously easy to go to it. You know, it's like kick on ranch. Um, I have kick on ranch and Vandenberg off of that vineyard has always been close to wherever my winery has been. And, and they let me go there as well. You know, some, you know, like I don't own any of these vineyards. So sometimes it's, it's like, Oh, you can't just come all the time. You have to call and, and you know, it's like, it's their land, it's their property and it's kind of their rules. But like, I think uh, if you're able to go often, it, it makes a huge effect. And if you're able to just live in front of the, the vines, it's, you, you can't replace that. I mean, one of, the, one of the growers in Austria, I remember they told me that they used to have a vineyard and it was like three kilometers away or four kilometers away. And they just said, yeah, we just sold it. That was just too far to drive on the tractor in the morning. And I was just like, that's amazing. Like, I would love to have a vineyard only for, kilometers away from the winery you know i don't even have that and they're just like no it's just too far away to deal with but it shows you that's part of wine culture in europe it was you know people just their backyard there's oh let's have some apricot trees and a couple vines and you know sell it to the co-op you know that's kind of how it all started versus in california it's just barren land for the most part still and it's coastland so it's unbelievably expensive
0: because um, you're fighting with vacation rentals and stuff. Like yeah,
2: that. exactly. Yeah, and a lot of steps have been taken to you know, like the parcels are enormous too. In Santa Barbara,
0: it's all ag eighty, so it's kind of like okay, so, so you're they gonna set start up shopping. A system by government that said you couldn't have a small parcel, so that there wouldn't be a lot of development.
2: Yep, exactly. So we're just we're going at it at a different. You know, it's it's never going to be the other. way, You know, this is all just happens so that
0: means the buy-in is very large because you can't just buy a small little sliver you got to buy a big piece yeah
2: definitely pretty much 80 acres just to to be playing the game
0: that means to be playing the game you, you have to have millionaire backing right yeah
2: yeah that's and that's just that's how most most vineyards are in california and it's um luckily there's a huge range of millionaires with their intentions you know some of them are just like oh i just don't want to worry about it we'll just you just grow grapes and we're going to grow cabbage too and i'm just going to manage a company to to just deal with that and try to make money but it's really like just some long-term investment or it could be someone that's like oh no i really want to get some good producers in here i want to get a high-end vineyard consulting team and that will cater to like small guys like me with all these like funky requests you know like let's get out there with the hose and rakes
0: but are your funky requests a function of, hey, I think there's a market out there that might be interested in these wines? Or is it more like, you know, I'm trying to get something done here that I saw once in Europe, or is it both of those?
2: It's it's both of those. Cause it's like Grunovellina would be a great example. There's not a lot of it that exists. I see there's opportunity, you know, I'm I'm in it. I'm a producer of that grape variety. And I see my customers saying, like, we like, you know, it's a great feedback. We like it other people are interested in it. We're selling through that wine. So that's how I know there's interest because we're selling through those wines like briskly. And there's also the side where, Oh no, i I think this is how they grow that in Europe or it doesn't even matter. You know, that's Europe. It's just like, this is how this is someone who's done it for a long time. This is what's been successful for them. It's not the way we traditionally do things in California would you be open to making these changes for me? Yeah. So those are like, those are what I call like the funky odd request. And right now is, it's a wonderful time. I think in, in the California wine industry because there's a lot of people like these millionaires that own the vineyards and the vineyard teams that are, they're like, okay, let's give it a try. You know?
0: So is it kind of like going to the major Hollywood studio and being like, I know how to direct a movie that's going to appeal to millennials because it like going to the big, you know, they have one resource, but they need somebody else to kind of translate it for them so that they can reach the market.
2: I think the range on that is, is huge. You know, each, each, like each grower I work with, that's a unique relationship and you've got to either maybe talk big like that. Like, Oh, this is going to be the big thing. Or you've got to, dumb it down and just be like, bring them up, bring them an make his example and, you know, on a Sunday afternoon and open it, be like, you know, and just say, oh, this has grown on sandy soils, you know, over there. And I think we could pull this off here or something similar enough, you know, and something enjoyable depending on the investor or the owner. Yeah. They could want to get away from that Hollywood or that big time, big business. Cause if, what if they, if they came from that, Maybe they came to the wine industry because, after all that time making money, they're like, "Oh, it's really about just sitting on a table with my friends and drinking a bottle of wine, and I can afford to own a vineyard." You know, so so you really gotta play it to whoever you're working with.
0: And they probably don't like being talked down too much. You're like, <laughs> Dude, "Hey, let me tell you about wine." Like that probably doesn't it, fly. That too does well. not
2: fly. That does not fly at all.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's that a wealthy is, area.
2: That's. And, it's that, or, uh, you know, and some of the, uh, you know, I work with a couple of sites of old vine Riesling from the sixties and seventies. And that's where these are old school California growers, you know, and they, they don't want to hear like, Oh, this is some kid that went and worked in Austria. Like I didn't even know they made wine. They make wine in Austria. What? He doesn't know anything. So that's like, that's more like bring a six pack of Miller high life and uh try to charm them, you know.
0: But it's worked for you because yeah. you got some contracts, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally
2: it's totally doable. It's
0: great. So what's the difference between growing Grüner Veltliner and growing Riesling in California?
2: Well, it's certainly a lot easier to grow Grüner Veltliner. Uh, so far, I've had little to no rot on any of the Grüner Veltliner I work with in California.
0: Does that include botrytis? Yeah. Exactly. So does that affect the kind of wine that you'd be making as opposed to say like the Wachau or something?
2: A- absolutely. You know, um, in the Wachau, they, they have a fair amount of Botrytis on the Gruner, especially in the West over at Spitz. You know, that's very Botrytis-influenced region. But then, you know, there's plenty of producers in the Wachau and, and even more, and as you keep going West towards Vienna, that have less and less Botrytis. So, You just, you've got to do the right, you've got to do the right thing or, you know, you you can't, you can't set up a set of goals that are just unrealistic to the fruit that you, that you've been given by, by your land, you know, and, you know, with Riesling, we do get botrytis and that's where you have to do a lot more hand sorting. There's much, you know, I do multiple passes in Riesling vineyards versus in Grunewald vineyards, I usually just do multiple passes to capture a different bricks and acid level. I'm not really hand-sorting Veltliner in the vineyard versus Riesling I am hand-sorting
0: in the vineyard. I should understand the differences between the multiple Rieslings and the multiple Gruners as soil type and climate.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, down in you know, my two older sites, they have very similar soils. It's Lafond and Sisquok. Those are both grown in basically ancient, ancient creek beds. Or just a like LaFon's on the riverbank of the San Ynez River, which has almost no water in it, but so a lot more clay in that soil, more silt as you would think in the bottom of a river. But then the the main component there is sand. It's just that's the Santa Barbara. That's like Santa Barbara's thing is sand. But it's it's one of these other things that kind of hold that sand together a little bit. So a little more clay there at LaFon, and then also Sisquac, that's in Santa Maria Valley, but also grown on this slightly northern aspect slope in an ancient riverbed. So again, you've got more silt, more clay. You actually have some cobblestones there, but, you know, it's really the sand and clay, I think, that is the dominant soil type. So like with those two wines, they taste completely different. And I think that's just the environmental effects of ones being in Santa Rita Hills and ones in Santa Maria Valley.
0: But a lot of times in the European model, there is so much emphasis on ripeness, in your style, it's not so obvious from the label. So do you vary the ripeness to the site or is it more uniform for you?
2: You know, the ripeness right now is I feel like it's 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 still a work in progress. You know, that's I still feel like we've just we've just started and I I mean with Riesling most of the the Riesling comes in around the same ripeness level. And I think it comes in at a ripeness level that probably most Riesling in Europe comes in. It's just, it's just very, you know, it's a pretty big category like that 12 and a half to 14 and a half range. You know, there's just so much wine made at, at that level. And the, you know, I think it's each producer might have, a slightly different style where, oh, they like it a little bit heavier or they like it a little bit more ethereal.
0: So I'm really just playing around with that. So when the grapes hit the winery door, what's that like for you? What's your facility like? And then how do you go about handling those white grapes?
2: Most grapes are picked now at night in my area, which is really great to get cold fruit. That's a really good way to start things off. But they come in and almost everything would be, let's, let's get started. Let's let you either prep the winery the probably the night before so that you can fill the press immediately and start working with cold juice, but whole cluster press to a tank cold settle rack off that like dirty rack off that, you know, you take a fair amount of the solids in and then ferment it the next day.
0: What's the benefit of whole cluster press?
2: Well, they say you get a lower pH. I guess everybody says that. It helps your pH a little bit. But um, it also, it's easier to press. It, it's interesting. You can't fit as much in the press because it's whole cluster, but it just works. It works better. Like your your juice is clearer and, you know, you, you don't, at the end of your press cycle, you're not opening up the doors and finding, like, wet pumice in there it's usually like you can you can kind of get it done on a gentler press cycle by leaving it a whole cluster
0: that's interesting so that must be valuable for the kind of wines that you make the white wines that you make yeah you can work gently
2: absolutely absolutely i mean gently but that's also a it's you know we still are like pressing the crap out of this product it's like you want to yeah you don't want to be too harsh but there's there's times where you do you know um so one, so almost all whites are made that way, except in the case where I'm going to do skin contact on a white, which is usually like one pick off of kick on ranch where I do crush it and macerate it for a few hours. But then it's, it's whole cluster pressed of crushed. Well, it's still stem included and put it in the press. So it's easier to get in there. But this, you know, part of the reason why whole cluster pressing, one of the things that makes it get a Uh, a nicer juice yield of clean juice is the stems act as kind of channels for the juice and they break up the pumice so you're not just ending up with a big cake so even on that crushed and macerated stuff you still got the stem involved
0: and is that macerated stuff blended in with the other wine eventually or is
2: it now it used to not be because i used to only be able there Now with, with farming, we're able to make the, that pass in the vineyard, a larger and larger component, each vintage. So the wine that I actually call kick on ranch is totally that pick. It's only, it had skin contact. There's no other parts of kick on ranch that are blended into it. And so now there's, there's usually a little bit left of that, that I put towards Vandenberg just to give it a little more backbone, a little more tannic structure
0: leaving in the solids probably also gives it a little bit more mouthfeel. Yeah. Is there any other reason that you might do that?
2: There's, I mean, you get mouthfeel, you get flavor. I mean, there's tons of flavor in Riesling skins. The guy, everybody in Europe will tell you that really, you know, that I'm only in a position where I can, you know, essentially I work with five to six Riesling picks a year and I'm only able to really comfortably do skin contact on one of them. Although it's a really good solid skin contact on that. But, um, but that's the goal. I mean I mean that's gonna make a stylized wine. That's gonna make like a headier, richer, powerful. You I mean you get power, you get more flavor, you get more texture, all from the skins.
0: But your wines often seem somewhat zippy as
2: well. I want the acid to be there, you know.
0: And is that a function of pick date or variety or both?
2: I think that's variety. I've left some Yeah. I mean we try to get it so the that grapes really start shutting down when it's getting close to my pick date. You try to get it. So you have extended hang time on the vine without any more accumulation of sugar. And then hopefully you're not losing acidity, which that's the way it is at kick on ranch for sure. Like I've I've, like 2014, I, I had to leave some Riesling out there uncomfortably long because the harvest was so short. It was so abridged this vintage And there was just no room in the winery because things were fermenting and you need a lot of extra space for the fermentation to happen. So tanks weren't full to the top because they couldn't be. I just had to leave that pick out and left it for about two weeks longer than I wanted to. And when it was time to, you know, check it again and pick it and press it off, it was like, great. This tastes amazing. And we didn't lose acid and we didn't gain sugar in a hot year. So those things we did in the vineyard to kind of control that through canopy management and water management it it worked even in a warm year so
0: have there been other learning vintages for you or surprise vintages or
2: certainly i mean that's that's again back to we're just starting out here you know it's in in 08 when i started really was i had four picks off of kick on ranch and that was that was a little bit more like flying blind you know like let's pick something earlier than I think it's ready. And let's pick something a week after that. And then a week after, and then, you know, a couple weeks after that, you're like, okay, this, this tastes, I think this is where we want to go, but we'll see like when it's a finished wine. So that's, that's learning. And then 09, you learned a huge amount. Of that vintage cause was a high botrytis year, very wet October. Which is so unusual. And then uh, 2010, being such a cold year, I learned about a lot, of, a lot in that vintage. I mean, I think I turned the water off too early. The wines are, I mean, people like those wines. they were very, like, the market trend. They, they ended up fitting well with the market trend. They're very light, very low alcohol. Like, that's the lowest wines I've made. And... Un- but unbelievably high acid and, and there's, a, there's like a bitterness in those wines that has now really mellowed out and they are very age-worthy. But at the time, you know, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe we turned the water off a little bit too early, And maybe we leafed a little too early and in such a cold year, you know, it was like too much stress to get those grapes ripe. And what's interesting is 2011 is so similar to 2010 and we were able to basically adjust. it's like, I I love that vintage 2011. It's awesome. And then, uh, 2012 is kind of an an easier, a lot of people call it like the Goldilocks year. It was just, it just wasn't challenging, which makes really nice drinkable wines. Like consumers love them. But it's kind of like, you, you don't have, there's no story about, oh, this happened during harvest. You know, it's just less, it's less exciting, but it just made good wines, it was an easy year. And then... there's was thir- a lot of Jeopardy that year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's
0: <laughs> when I caught up with Breaking Bad.
2: Yeah. yeah. Exactly. A lot of uh, Netflix binging. In um, 2013, I was that was the scariest vintage for me, just because it was so hot, so early, and totally worked out, you know, it totally worked out. And it just made me re- really, rethink a lot of things that are just said about, Oh, if it gets too hot, like this is going to happen. Like, I mean, I've seen things happen to other grape varieties, um, where it gets hot and, you know, you gain three bricks in, in 24 hours, it's like that, that wouldn't do well with my program. And, uh, I just think each grape is kind of on its own schedule there. Plus if you do all these things and you're kind of shutting your vines down when it's getting closer to, closer to harvest, they're less affected by dramatic, you know, weather changes like that, or by heat changes. And so in 14, again, so that was back to back warm years. I was like, okay, we can do this. Like, you know, you've got to, you've got to really have a good relationship with your grower and especially your, whoever drives the grapes from the vineyard to the winery to get the pick date you want and to get them delivered when you think you're going to deliver them you know a lot of people learned i think hard lessons in 13 and uh they learned it it's great and in 14 the the sort of cue to get your grapes harvested it was way out there normally i have pretty you know i'm able to get the pulse of the vineyard and and feel like okay i These grapes are going to be good. They're going to be where I want them in the next like four to eight days. Like, you know, it's not like you have to pick this exact moment, but there's like a window for your particular style. And normally I'm that that's more than enough lead time. But in 14, I was making calls and it was like, oh, the earliest I can do is eight days. It's like, oh, good thing I called today. (laughs) Like, because I don't know how it would be after that.
0: A small player like uh, such as yourself under 3000 cases a year, it must be harder and harder to get people to pay attention to you who work in the middle like that when they're dealing with, you know, bigger wineries. No, well
2: that's, that's, it depends on, on who you're working with. And, and I work with some pretty accommodating people actually. I mean, that's, that's probably why I work with, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm working with them. It's like, these guys have more than enough crew. Oftentimes the grapes are more expensive to have that luxury, but it's, 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 you're getting something for, for that price. You know, you're getting that they've got a crew, like a big crew or multiple crews and, and they'll, they'll make things happen. And yeah, other, I guess the yeah, other is, there's definitely uh there's a site where it's like big and it's hard to get something. It's hard to have like a special request or come down to like a crunch time, and like you're just at the mercy because you're not buying thirty tons. You know, you're buying three, and like you can't blame them, you know.
0: But at the same time, you probably don't have a lot of other people looking over your shoulder, being like, "Hey, I was eyeing that Gruner." Like, it's probably you kind of got it. No,
2: no, that's the opposite. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a lot of people eyeing the Gruner Veltliner for sure, and 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 that's again where the relationships I have with those growers is really important. And, and the, like the vineyard companies that they hire, you've got to have just be on good terms with them because they do a lot for you. And, and, you know, there's, I, I've seen so many of my colleagues, so many of my friends in that are more in the Chardonnay and Pinot Noir game where it's been really, really cutthroat. And so it's not, it's not as bad as some of the stories I've heard, but
0: definitely people are, are looking for it. So Um, that sounds like a lot of six packs of beer on your tab. Yeah, there's
2: a fair amount of six packs of beer and, and they do, they do have like a long term site for it. They're like, okay, well, this guy worked in Austria. Like he's, you know, he pays his bills on time. Those things do go a long way, you know? So hopefully I can, yeah, hopefully, I mean, when I find something I really want, really like, I try to get as long term contract as
0: I can. To take it back to the winery for a second, what about Elevage and wood? I mean, how long? and
2: In general, uh, Grunewald Liener, it's like lives its whole life in stainless steel. That's something I learned over there. I got to work with some Young Vines when I was actually at Hertzberger for a few weeks. And he just, Franz Hertzberger is just like, you know, Young Vine, Grunewald Liener, just don't do, don't ask anything from it. Don't do anything to it. Just put it in stainless steel. Just for minute, get it dry, bottle it early. Don't even think about doing anything like putting it in in a big in like acacia or or leaving it long and seeing if it turns into something wonderful. Just don't add. and so all my sites are young and so that's pretty much the program. I have uh, now just introduced a couple 500 liter acacia casks that that only makes up about 15% of the blend on on the wine, you know. So,
0: and I, why'd you choose acacia?
2: That's just the traditional, the, the most traditional wood for Bruneliner in Austria. I think it makes you know when you smell new acacia cask, it has you know, you, you smell more like honey and lavender rather than that uh, vanilla and just straight char from oak. And I think those it has flavors that are naturally in Bruneliner and even and even Riesling. I mean. The goal will be eventually, when those acacias go neutral, to start putting Riesling in there. So that's Gruner. But Gruner, is really, it's like 90% stainless steel, We bottle, late winter, early spring, going for just that fresh style that, that, most, that most American consumers know Gruner-Vetliner as. You know, it's like most, still like the average consumer has never had some Schmaragd wine from the Wachau. Like those wines, they're quite different than the leader Gruner, you know, the leader bottle. And so I'm going more towards that easier style Grenadilla. While these wines are young with fine age, I would love to to make something more, something more intense. You know, I, I love those wines. But yeah, for now, just keep it keep it pretty simple, keep it easy.
0: So then it probably hits the market pretty quick after élevage.
2: Yeah, yeah, it hits it very quick. It's. It feels like we're gonna hit or turn a corner here where I where I'm able to put a little bit more bottle age on, on those wines. Cause they do. They taste good right out of bottle, you know, right after bottling. But they they taste a lot better in the summer, even or in the fall. And and I'd prefer to do that, you know. So, like with riesling, you know, that goes to either stainless steel or neutral wood, and that those are aged. Traditionally, until August when I bottle, and then bottle age for a year before I release them. And those, you know, that's just, it's a different grape. We've got older vines. It's a serious, serious grape. And I've found that California Riesling, like the good examples of, of people doing it historically, the, you know, you, no, nobody's talking about the current release of, let's say, like Stony Hill. People are talking about old Stony Hill. You know, they're talking about these aged examples, you know, there's age examples of Sanford and Benedict Riesling. It's like, Oh wow, a wine is phenomenal. And it's just, it needs, it needs longer. And so that's what, that's what I do for the Riesling. But I'd, I'd like to get, I think the, whether it's my style of winemaking or just the nature of the grapes in California, I feel like bottle age on those varieties is extremely beneficial
0: so in terms of the wines you've released so far, what's the market reception been like?
2: It's been really good. You know, we've, uh, I've really targeted, I mean, I've had, it's, it's challenging and in the sense that I, I can't just go anywhere and knock on their door and say, hey, I make dry reese from Santa Barbara. I like, can you know, you you know, get a lot of blank stares or like, you know, we'll taste with you later or something from that. So you really have to target sommeliers and ones that are into Riesling and Veltliner, and knock on their doors and be like, Hey, try this. And, and so far I've, I've got like the people that have supported me have supported me in a m- pretty major ways. Like they've carried my wines, if not from the beginning, from the beginning of me showing it to them. So I'm really, really happy with the support. And it's just been, it's been great. But at the same time, you know, it's a, a small producer still, there's not tons of wine out there, but it's, it's been, uh, you know, the, the few people, you know, there's just a few that, that can, I feel like, get their head wrapped around it and then go and sell it to who actually is going to drink it. I mean, that's, that's the other thing, like, I, I sell most almost all my wine to restaurants or really small wine shops where, like, either a restaurant where it's a buy the glass program where you have four times the opportunity to expose someone to it, you know, and the opportunity maybe for them to even taste it before they buy it. And, and then these small wine shops where they're cultivating customers that really come in and be like, oh, I'm in, I'm cooking this for dinner. Or I'm in this mood. And, and they, they trust the the merchant, you know, but if, if I just go and try to sell to like a large, a larger restaurant chain or, you know, a huge, what huge wine stores there are, I mean, I can't sell to like Bebmo, right? So Like, no one would ever buy that. No one ever, you know, I want the wine to, you know, I sell it to someone who has to resell it. And I want them to be able to do that successfully. It's a
0: hand-sell product all the
2: way through. All the way through to the end. And so you look for people that are, yeah, people that are passionate about wines that I am as well. You know, I usually, you know, these restaurants that I sell the wines to, it's like, I want to go to that restaurant. That's like the food, usually, it's, us- you know, it's, not just, it's usually not just the wine program. You know, you get these professionals that get together. You've got a chef, you've got a restaurant tour, you've got a sommelier, a wine director, and uh, it ends up being a good combination.
0: But what's it like to sell gruner from California in a market where Austrian examples of gruner are also available?
2: You've got to show up with good wine, that's for sure. You know, because Austrian, you can get really good Austrian gruner not a lot of money. You can get really great Austrian Grüner Veltliner for a lot of money now, which is great, more power to them they deserve it. But um but you've got to just you've got to show up with the goods. You know, it's I think most of my wine in California, you know, I sell most of my wine in California. And there's this huge out there there's a huge kind of home field advantage where they're like oh, this is grown in our state, let's try it. Or people visiting and be like, oh, they want wines, you know, people go to Los Angeles, tourists, and they say, what wines, like, what are the California wines you suggest? We're like, oh, well, Santa Barbara is the closest wine region, really, try this.
0: Which is also true of Austria, right? Like, Austrians drink Austrian wine. Absolutely. But in terms of price points, you know, if someone's serving your wine by the glass that probably is a certain kind of price point right
2: yeah it's 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 a higher end price point for sure i mean it's really top restaurants in general you know they have the clientele that's willing to spend you know like 12 to 16 dollars a glass on wine because that's where the wine just has to land to make their business work you know so it's not
0: buy. tony roma's the place for ribs by the yeah, glass selection it's but just,
2: it's exactly it's kind of like a little fringe benefits. Like you get to sell these really nice restaurants. Yeah. I mean, you have to, again, you got to show up with the goods. They've got to want to buy it, but then it, it, it builds, you know, I, I feel like I gain, I've gotten a fair amount of emails where someone has said, Oh, I had your wine at such and such. Like, you know, and it was like a special occasion for them. And it's because it's a really nice restaurant and those are the restaurants that can afford to, to pour these wines, you know, from the small producers, of California.
0: What's it like to be the one guy at the winery making the 3,000 cases, but also selling the 3,000 cases? Because I imagine you don't have a a national sales manager or anything like that.
2: No, no, yeah, it's just me. I mean, it's just me, but I have uh, at the winery, and then I don't sell my wine other than, you know, I, I help the people who do sell it as much as I can. So it's very small distributors around the country, and in California, it's broker's not even distribution. So these are, you know, usually books that are pretty small in nature wines that these guys love to drink and uh, they've figured it out. You know, it's easier for me to work with a small company because, you know, the bigger the company, the more dilution and they're not going to, not everybody down the chain is going to you know, heard of Brunner or care about it. You know, so, my brokers and my distributors that they're really, they're indispensable. You know, I can't do without them.
0: So when you come back in five or six years and tell me how things are going, what do you wish to have achieved in the interim? What's next for you?
2: I'm happy with how the wines are and I'm really enjoying learning these vineyards and like feeling like there's a connection with them. So I think that can only get stronger. Hopefully, I've got more Riesling sites off of and, you know, more Riesling, more Veltliner off different soil structures in my area. Like there's just, there's so much unplanted land. There's so many clones that we could choose from and make that interesting, but
0: just going for top-notch wine. Graham Tatomer, to he's going for top-notch wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Levy. Graham Totomer of the Totomer Winery based in Santa Barbara. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs,